Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Folding Pocket. Welcome to another episode of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. And hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Kat. Hello, Kat. So this is our Christmas episode. Yes. I love that. You know, I like that we um, celebrate all the obvious points of the year on yes. our show. But you refused to put on a Christmas jumper. I, I refused did. to put on a Christmas jumper. And Kat did put on a Christmas jumper. Yes. So you are the spirit of Christmas in between the Grinch and Ebenezer over here. Yes, I'm happy to be the Grinch. I mean, you've gone for green, which I suppose is this sort is of Christmas. Christmas. My normal Christmas jumper is black. Yeah, okay. Oh, really? Well, Vicar Jumper. Of course, yes, yes. <laughs> and I've gone for Hooray Casual, I think it's known as. <laughs> Got green trousers, I suppose. Yeah. Green trousers, mm, yes. Works. Are you doing Norwegian Christmas or English Christmas or you do a hybrid Christmas? Bit of a hybrid, which was a stupid thing for me to start doing because I do all the cooking and so I end up doing Christmas Eve, Norwegian style. And, and then what is Christmas Norwegian dinner. style? Is it turkey? No, it's, well, there's lots of different things. Depends on where and where you're from. Yes. For me, it's pork. It's a pork belly, which pork is the big. Yeah. That's a very good Christmas idea, actually. Yeah, it's really huge. You get a huge belly of pork that cooks really beautifully crisp right on top. It's no, so, what, sort so of one good. of those ones you just leave in the oven forever? For quite a while, yeah, but you have to sort of keep an eye on it to make sure it's got Doesn't the crackling dry. on top. gets mm. really nice and crispy. So your friends, technically could come to you for Christmas Eve for Port Belly and then Definitely. have an English Christmas the next day, just saying. Yes, they could. They could, absolutely. What's and your make the best one. Christmas dish? Is it turkey or is it goose? What, what's your thing? It's whiskey. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Well, after years of vicaring, of course, that's enough Christmas, to be honest. So we'd shut up shop, we'd change into our pyjamas and we'd have drink and snacks mm. and watch... Usually, I like a sort of violent film. So, you know, London has fallen or White House down. That would be my... But that's because we were so Christmassed out by then. I've done 30 carols. Yeah, you've done it. Yeah. 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 I know that is the thing, because I still have children at school age. I've done my carol services and it's been... Uh, I've I mean, done I your them. carol services. Yes, you did two in a row because yeah, we had yeah. so many people coming. Yeah. And you very kindly did two in a row. And you, you were very patient because... Well, they're quite long services around me. They were comprehensive. (laughs) (laughs) It's not seven lessons and carols. It was ten, I think, of each. Probably. What's a famous Norwegian carol cat? Oh, a lot of them are the same as English versions, but just in Norwegian. So, Mm. come on, um, give us a little one. (laughs) Just a little one. Singing any of them? No. Well, you say the words, and I'll sing it. Um, 
Glade jul, hellige jul. Glade jul, hellige jul. There we go, very like good. Yeah, See? Sounds very Norwegian. Didn't need me. <laughs> yeah. And Richard, Excellent. did you? Were you a chorister when you were young? I was. Did you yeah. sing any solos? I did. I was head chorister for two glorious years before my voice broke and I experienced the first dashing of all my hopes and dreams. <laughs> um, so, yeah, once in all, David City. I did that too. Did you? Yeah, in whatever, 1976. Excellent. You're going to start this week, Charles, and yours already been brought up Christmas films, please. Yes, well, it's not. I'm not going to touch on White House Down, although that does remind me there's still a debate going on as to whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. And, of course it's a Christmas movie. Well, you're in the majority, but only just, you know. Uh, well, actually, no, sorry. There was a survey done by YouGov in 2022, and 46% of people said Die Hard is not a Christmas movie, and only 37% said it is. Any film in which someone wears a Santa hat yeah what is the definition is there a definition of a christmas movie there, well not really and it's very complicated because some of the great christmas movies they weren't even billed as christmas movies so a miracle on 34th street came out on purpose in may of 1947 because the christmas theme was not something you wanted to advertise you wanted to bring out your major movies in the warmer months because the audiences would come so when I looked into this, my real joy when I do these topics, I had it with the Ned Kelly gang when we were looking at Outlaws a few episodes ago, is finding whole short movies because I have the attention span of a gnat. So I've watched the very first Christmas movie. It's called Santa Claus from 1898. Oh. Yeah, 75 feet of film. It's my perfect length. It lasts <laughs> one minute and 16 seconds. But it's brilliant. People listening should go on YouTube or whatever and watch it. It's done by this English pioneer of film called George Albert Smith, who based himself in Brighton as a hypnotist and a slightly fraudulent one by all accounts. He used to say that he could do things through telepathy, but he couldn't, obviously. But he was a magic lanternist and hypnotist who was intrigued. He went to watch some Lumiere performances in Leicester Square in 1896. And in 1897, produced 31 films, we think. But in 1898, his masterpiece is Santa Claus. His wife, Laura, and his children, Harold and Dorothy, are in it. He uses superimposition, cutting techniques of a magic lanternist. He's really interesting. And it's a great film with uh, a very simple theme of children going to bed and waking up and Santa Claus coming down. Santa Claus coming down the chimney with a Christmas tree, which is obviously quite hard work. But then there's a Christmas dream, or in fact, it's called Le Rêve de Noël by Georges Méliès. And that's four minutes, 15 seconds. And so we're getting these themes, very accomplished themes of Christmases. But really, it all stems, if you look at these early Christmas movies all the way through to the current ones, they all sort of hang their hat on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. Very famous, obviously, by the end of the 19th century. That was something that people could all relate to. The characters were so huge. Somebody brought out a movie in 1901 called Marley's Ghost, but they renamed it Scrooge to pull in the audiences. And that was by uh, directed by a man called Robert W. Paul, who has been called arguably England's most important film pioneer. And he used trick techniques, um, but it's all based on Christmas Carol, the novella by Charles Dickens from 1843. And it's a popular theme. We look at Charles Dickens, people say he invented Christmas as we know it. But actually what he did was tap into 
a stream of nostalgia that existed in the mid-19th century for what the overpopulated town people of England looked back on as these beautiful rural Christmases that they could remember. And he tapped into this wish. You know, these people were overworked, underpaid, leading quite miserable lives. So he brought in this theme of Merry Christmas. It's actually, that's something he invented, that expression, Merry Christmas. And he seemed to be particularly captivated by the sort of snowy, perfect, giving Christmas that we can still associate with. And people who've looked at Dickens's life believe that it goes back to eight consecutive winters, which were very crisp and snowy during his childhood. And he was looking back at that as the inspiration for what he did. And so if we look at that sort of the whole thing, we know in 1908, there was a major a Christmas carol of several minutes in Chicago. Films well, getting longer and longer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Here we are. I hate these ones that are three hours and a quarter. People must have thought, wow, that's long when it was eight minutes or so. But we have a problem with the really early versions because the Americans have been very shoddy about looking after their early films. And we reckon that 90% of films made in America before 1929 are lost forever. And in fact, half of all American films made before 1950 are gone. They just weren't kept in the right way and they've disintegrated. So if we look at this Dickensian idea, we see it in A Trap for Santa Claus, which was produced in 1909. It's a film about a, a bad man and his family. He deserts them. He's a drunk. He becomes a robber. And he has this sort of epiphany because his children set a trap for Santa Claus and they catch their father burgling them because they've moved to a nice house through a lucky inheritance. And then that bad father's transformed in this Christmas movie from a real badden into a man who now gets the joy of family life and dresses up as Santa Claus. It's the first time we see that happen in a movie to try and please his children and, and make the family a happier place. It's a Wonderful Life is one of the great movies from 1946. It's based on a book and, well, it's a short book called The Greatest Gift that was written in 1943. And that was, again, based on Dickens's A Christmas Carol. Richard? Well, I just say it is unarguably the greatest Christmas movie. And I will challenge anyone who says differently to a duel with Christmas <laughs> baubles. It is, it is Christmas the Christmas balls. film yes. beyond all Christmas films. Well, what's so interesting about it was that it wasn't a success at the time. <gasps> Everyone was sure it would be. Everyone on the set was convinced. Frank Capra was the guiding force behind it. I worked for his son, in fact, at really? NBC. He was director of my show I was on. But Capra fell out with the original screenwriters and brought in a bevy of talent, including Dorothy Parker, actually, who's an uncredited talent behind the writing. Everyone was sure it was going to be a success. Jimmy Stewart was thrilled to get the part because he had had his very brilliant career interrupted by World War II and thought, right, this is going to put me back on track. So he arrived on the film without an agent and it was a second chance for him to get going, but it failed to break even. They look on that now, film analysts, as being because it didn't have unbridled optimism, which to me seems strange because that seems to be the theme well, that the, I see. Yeah, and the tawniness of that film is what makes it a great film and rescues it from sentimentality. Yes, and it was nominated for five Oscars, but didn't win any. What a 
And scandal. Do you know the reason it became so popular? It's extraordinary. No. Republic Pictures, who made it, thought it was just not worth renewing the copyright. So it fell out of copyright in 1974, which meant that it was shown for free endlessly by TV channels until 1993. And that led to the film's success. It became a Christmas staple on the TV. Well, in the same caliber, I would say, of hits is White Christmas, which was uh, the biggest grossing film in the USA in 1954. The main song was written by Irving Berlin, who we met in the piece I did about Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. He wrote the song 12 years earlier, in fact, and sort of kept it on the back burner. It was, it was used in this film. It had already won all sorts of awards, actually. Wasn't it in another film as well? Yeah, Holiday Inn. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That was the original film it was in. And White Christmas is in many ways a retelling of Holiday Inn. There have been over 500 versions of the song sang around the world by Ella Fitzgerald all the way through to Taylor Swift. It was first film that Paramount released in its new widescreen format, VistaVision, and it was also in Technicolor, great innovations. But the real thing was that Bing Crosby really did steal the show, and Danny Kaye obviously was brilliant. Fred Astaire was meant to be in it, and when he couldn't be for some reason, Bing Crosby nearly pulled out. But one of the things that makes it so magical is a lot of those key moments that we remember from the film are impromptu ones. So there's a moment when Bing Crosby shouts out, slam, bang, finish. That's something he just came up with at the time. And the midnight snack scene that they filmed in that, that's entirely improvised. I must have seen that film a hundred times, well, a dozen times. The only thing I remember from it, two things. One is the song White Christmas. Yes. And the other thing is how scarlet the scarlet was. I guess that was Technicolor. Kind oh, of yes, they'd rather overdone key. it. <laughs> well, yes. it was just very, it was very, very red film. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've touched on um, the way they let things run. And, and in fact, the director, Michael Curtis, enjoyed the clowning around of Danny Kaye so much and the genuine laughter of Bing Crosby that many of those cutaways are, they weren't scripted at all. It's just the two stars having a great time together. I mentioned Miracle on 34th Street, which is based on 1946 Macy's Day Parade. I like the origins of these films, and it was originally going to be called The Big Heart, or My Heart Tells Me, or It's Only Human. It lost Best Picture to Gentleman's Agreement, a Gregory Peck look at anti-Semitism. But one of the supporting actors won Best Supporting Actor Oscar, which was Edmund Gwen, and he did something which has become more common since. Uh, one of the reasons that the Academy gave him this honour was because he had to gain £30 for the part. We're used to that now with Raging Bull and all sorts of things since. I think we have to come into more recent times and look at Home Alone in 1990. That was given a budget of $10 million, but they spent $18 million. But it's, it's certainly recovered that many times over. Never seen it. <gasps> oh, well, you have to. You know the little boy with a shocked face thing. Yes, <laughs> it is very good. I mean, that I grew up with that as the Christmas film, really. Yes. Well, that is the highest grossing comedy of all time until Barbie. No. And, um, and it was just behind Ghost and Pretty Woman the year it came out. A footnote on Ghost. Ruby Wax and I were sent by a TV company to review Ghost, and we both gave it a thumbs down. We thought it was going to sink the <laughs> track. Work. So we've never, yeah. ever been asked to do anything like that again. And then the Joe Pesky character, Harry, in it, was originally earmarked for Robert De Niro, but he couldn't do it. And then in another turn, there's Uncle Frank. That role went to Jerry Bauman, uh, but it was originally going to go to Kelsey Grammer, 
of Frasier and Cheers fame, who's one of my favourite comedic actors. There's a couple of others, more recent ones, the Elf. And again, actually, the original actor for that was meant to be Jim Carrey playing Buddy. I love Elf. It is my favourite Christmas movie. I just think it's joyous and, and brilliant. What? Yeah, love it. <laughs> and it was originally much darker. It was about the elves bullying Buddy, so he has to leave and find a new life. No, I'm liking it more. (laughs) (laughs) your version. (laughs) Snow hard. No, and then that the snow was added in post-production. But the director, John Favreau, hope that's how you pronounce him, wanted as little CGI as possible. He wanted it to be genuinely set in the modern world. So that's why you have so many scenes in New York City. And there's also lots of improvisation in that because Will Farrell's a very clever man. Buddy's song, when he sings it in Santa Land, that's an improvisation. And also the famous scream when he goes, Santa, that was just thrown in by him. And then Love Actually, of course, is a perennial favourite, one of Richard Curtis's standout movies. There were originally 14 different storylines, but they trimmed it down to 10. The one that people probably most lament when they heard about it afterwards was, there was a pair of... um, lesbian lovers, Anna Reed and Francis de la Tour, with Francis de la Tour, who's one of my favourite comedy figures and, and a great actor in her own right, as a terminally ill partner. And Richard Curtis is on record as saying how much he regrets having cut that one. But I do think the Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson so thing is incredibly powerful. Did you see there was a thing on Twitter this week, Charles, with somebody saying that if you really want to punish Alan Rickman being so horrible to Emma Thompson. Well, then Die Hard is on immediately after it, so you can <laughs> yes. see his plunge to his death. That's in that so one. true. That's what it, that's his just desserts. Thank you. Um, and then the holiday, which I didn't really actually enjoy very much. It was written for Cameron Diaz, Jude Law, Kate Winslet, and Jack Black. I mean, it's fine, it's fun, and all that, but it didn't really get me. Caused me the largest loss of Twitter followers I've ever had by a single tweet. What did you do? What did you I say? I said I think this film's a load of old shite. While it was on, and, I, <laughs> and, it pracked, and I lost, I think, ten percent of my Twitter following in within thirty seconds. Oh, That's don't crazy. Mess with that movie. No, well, I won't. No. I, I would say what it did result in a, a craze for house swaps, which is what the film's oh, based on, to the extent that the UK police had to give warnings about fraud and crime because people were using the joy about the holiday to capitalise on it in a criminal way. So there have been votes on the best Christmas film, and the most important one by IMDb involved a lot of voters and they had It's a Wonderful Life as the greatest Christmas film of all time <laughs> with Home Alone coming in second well, so you get gold and silver yes. although I have to say I really do enjoy Elf and I really enjoyed How the Grinch Stole Christmas with Jim Carrey it's I brilliant like Elf as well I'd like to see Darker Elf Darker <laughs> Elf I mean it's, it's yes. not without it I think Christmas should have light and shade don't you yes. what do you watch in Norway at Christmas Kat well these films do the come moon. out like this. The moon. We just <laughs> sit the and, uh, coming yes. in from the forest. And the trolls and, those, and what you will hear later on. Um, there is one, which I don't know if you've heard. Have you heard of a film called Dinner for One? Oh, so is that it, for the whole Norwegian population? <laughs> no, is, that, is, no, 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 is it just Norway or is it No, German? it's a European, it's a German yeah, one. Yeah, 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 I've heard of it. We thought it was British, but it's actually German. And it's a short film. It's from the 1970s. No, 63. It's from 1963. It's a really short 18 minutes. It's not technically a Christmas film. It's shown all over Europe, either on New Year's Eve. In Norway, it's shown on the 23rd at 9 o'clock every year. And that's sort of the start of it. By this old aristocrat, I think she's a duchess or something like that, and her butler. And she has a dinner party, but on her own. So the guests have all died, I think. So they they all (laughs) pretend. And the butler goes around and and serves them all alcohol. But he has to 
drink all the toast. So he gets more and more drunk as the evening goes on, serving her different dishes and as his party. I'm going to have to watch that. You will love it. It's really good. He gets so drunk and he falls over and it's 18 minutes of that. Second favourite Christmas film is. And it's really close. Yes. Fanny and Alexander, the great uh, Amar yes. Bergman movie. It's not a Christmas movie, although it's got Christmas in it. Mm. But also A Bishop Catches Fire and Burns to Death in it, which for a clergyman is obviously a big plus. Yes. <laughs> I love how that's... Uh, the Diocese of Peter. Well, do, can so, I give you my favourite fact? Yes, yes please. please. So during the filming of It's a Wonderful Life, they went big. The producers created a town... Bedford Falls with 75 shops and uh, a three block main street was built especially for it. 20 full grown oak trees were planted. But the special effects, this is my absolute joy, they decided not to go with the usual snowflakes made from painted cornflakes because they were noisy. And they produced a chemical flurry instead of fomite, soap and water. And that was the first time that they had gone that route really? instead of the painted mm. cornflakes. Well, I mean, it is a great film, a truly great film, I think. It certainly deserves its accolades. But to think that they invested a fortune in it and then just dumped it as a as a loss. Yes. And then it all of a sudden became the most popular Christmas film. They must be kicking themselves. Incredible, really. But if they had renewed the copyright, it probably wouldn't have... Well, no. Caught on. Yeah. It's the fact that it's been, people have been able to see it, it so many times. Yeah. That. What makes a success? Yeah. Right? Yes. Would you like to know two interesting things about Jimmy Stewart? Yes. One is that he was a very accomplished accordionist. <laughs> that's true. Okay. And the other thing is, he visited Grafton Underwood. No, that's yeah. near you. Yeah, in Northamptonshire in the war. I think he came was attached to the US Air Force or something. He was. He was quite a senior officer, actually. Yeah. I think he was a colonel or equivalent. And there was the US Air Force base to Grafton Underwood, and he oh, visited. Interesting. So did Clark Gable. Well, we had, where Kat and I have been digging up a Roman villa, there was a small aeroplane crashed, which was a messenger working for the American Air Force in World War II. And he came back many years ago to see where he had survived his crash. And he mentioned to the locals, you know, I had a, I have a very famous daughter, and it was Jodie Foster's father. No. Yes. <laughs> How funny. <laughs> by the saying, way, by yeah. the yes. <laughs> Might have heard of her. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. That's brilliant. I'm going to have to go and watch some of these, I think, <laughs> in the next few weeks. So I haven't actually seen that many of them, but that was very good. And I think we're going on to you now, Richard. <sighs> oh, no, we're not. Oh, yes, we <laughs> are. Oh, no, we're yes, not. we are. So Get this I know nothing about at all, and that's Panto. How long have you lived in England? <laughs> A long time. Do you don't know, as in, I know what they are, but have I don't know anything about one? them. No. <gasps> They're not very academic, are they? That's, that's where she falls. <laughs> that, no, I, no, do, no, I do, do have a sense of humour. There's a bloke at the V&A who was a world authority on it. It's interesting, though, if you are a Briton, you grow up with this stuff, you know the rules. I went with a friend, a Spanish friend, to see a panto, and at the end of it he said, this is the most stupid thing I've ever seen in all my life. What the hell is going on? It just never occurred to me that it might seem a bit peculiar. Panto, of course, at Christmas, it is such a great tradition in Britain and in Scotland and in Ireland, not many other places, some few interesting outliers. Everyone, or lots of people, go to the panto and have done for years and years and years. The sort of panto as we know it today really sort of was a Victorian invention. About 1900, panto as a great Christmas spectacle became a huge thing. But the origins are ancient. 
ancient, partly in the mummer plays of medieval England in which you would see certain archetypes performed, certain kind of satirical skits that people would recognise, a sort of licensing, perhaps, of an insolence that otherwise might not be tolerated, the feast of fools, the boy bishop, these kind of reversals of power structures as, I think, a means of earthing the kind of social anxieties that that produces. And that kind of met Commedia dell'arte coming in from Italy, which is that theatrical tradition of mime, in which, again, stock characters representing familiar sort of figures. So you would have, for example, the servants, who were sort of cunning and clever. And then you'd have the lovers, who were lovers, boring, but you've got to have them, right? And then you'd have the old people who were past it. And some of those characters, like Arlecchino and Columbina, of course, morphed into Harlequin and Columbine, who we recognise from the versions of that that began to appear in England came along really because Commedia dell'arte kind of spread across Europe and yet because it did in a way encode sometimes quite politically potentially explosive ways of looking at the world they were kicked out various places when there was a reassertion of the status quo and some of them ended up in England because theatre in the Regency period of course exploded and theatre became a huge thing there were changes in the law which meant that actors could speak rather than just mime if you see what I mean you know the Lord Chamberlain's department tightly controlled until the 1960s what people could see and hear on stage in London the great theatres like Sadler's Wells for example Lincoln's Inn and Drury Lane started to incorporate figures from Commedia dell'arte into existing shows now the way you did that you would put on some worthy show some retelling of a Greek myth example but there would be what they'd call a harlequinade in it like they did in the opera in france in the opera in france there was always a ballet and it was just a sort of not quite an interlude but something separate from the action which people would come especially to see and so it was the harlequinade so you'd have orpheus in the underworld blah 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 all very worthy and interesting and then all of a sudden there'd be this explosion of comedy and tumbling and acrobatics and hilarity through the harlequinade and it was one of those things where the tail began to sort of the dog because people started coming to the theatre not to see Greek myths for the improvement of their souls exactly but to see the Harlequinade and to have fun. Theatre managers started seeing the sort of value of this and then they started developing that more and more. So great stage machinery began to build, trapdoors for people to appear, enormous water tanks for water effects and by the time it gets about 1900 at somewhere like the Theatre or Drury Lane they were spending 10,000 quid which was a fortune in those days on a production of the pantomime, which would have lots of the ingredients we see today. And if you go to a panto today, and it could be a village hall panto, it could be at the London Palladium, you'll see certain characteristics that are common. I was thinking of the whole idea of an interlude. I suppose it's to give the main cast a bit of a break, isn't it? And you can have everyone doing something else. Because I, I went to a very, very upmarket sort of Folie Bergère show in France, and the ladies were displaying their wares in a very artistic way. And Very I went tasteful. with a, yes, tasteful. <laughs> and I went with a little group, and one of them was a gay gentleman called Griffin, and he was slightly bored by the proceedings until they said, "And now in the interlude, Jean Pierre will entertain you." And he looked very excited, Griffin, lots of <laughs> clapping, but Jean Jean Pierre was uh, just doing a puppet show, so that rather let down the theme. You know, you're going for something completely mm. different as your interlude. Well, manageable hopes. To <laughs> yeah. happiness, but it? is is it to do with giving everyone a break? Is that the idea? 
Not really. I mean, partly that. Also, you needed to do things with stage machine. But actually, it just became the thing that became more and more popular. I mean, Garrick was famous. who wanted to put on, you know, great sort of theatre, but also realised that to get the audience, what they came to see was the Harlequin Age. Similar with Shakespeare. If you had Shakespeare in the early 1800s, people would come to see Macbeth. Lots of people would come. But they liked the witches, you know? Yes. They came for the sort of special effects and the dramas. If you well, it's like Scrooge and Dickens. That was the... They liked the big... The, the ooh, big Yes, the, the big ah. ooh. Yes. And also Christmas, of course as a time of feasting, a kind of kindling light in darkness, mm-hmm. a time of the reversal of roles, perhaps. Servants get the day off, that kind of thing. Yes. So that's, all, that's all happening. And then the stories that they used, as the Harlequinade sort of became the thing, they sort of jettisoned all the other stuff and they used other stories. So they used folklore, the stories of Perrault from France, of course, the Brothers Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen, that came in. And so you begin to see the kind of repertoire that we know today of Puss in Boots, Mother Goose, Babes in the Wood, some Robinson Crusoe, Peter Pan, mm. more sort of contemporary things came in. The parts that remain the same are uh, goodies come on from the left, stage right, Baddies come on from the right, stage left, because that comes from medieval mystery plays where heaven was always stage right oh, and hell was always stage left because of a bias towards the mm-hmm. right against the left. There would be a principal boy who was played by a girl, although well, that's dying out a bit now, and there would be a dame, and the dame would, of course, be played by a man. And the great panto dame, well, Christopher Biggins in our own time, was earning a fortune as a pantomime dame in places like Wigan, and Manchester, while he was a young man starting out, which seems the time when there wasn't Christopher Biggins in Panto is unimaginable, I guess. <laughs> but the first of those great pantomime figures was Dan Lino. So Dan Lino was a famous comedian, but he was the first sort of Panto dame who evolved into the Panto dame that we know today. I mean, one of the most significant figures in the story of pantomime was Joseph Grimaldi, Joey who gave his name to every subsequent clown. Now, Grimaldi was a theatre performer, came from a family originally of Italian extraction, who'd been in all over Europe and ended up in Britain. And he played the clown. So Arlecchino, Harlequin, was the main character, and the clown was sort of comic relief. But Grimaldi gave the clown a number of attributes which expanded the part, expanded the character. He became clever, he became funny, he sort of invented slapstick. Do you know what slapstick is? No. Well, slapstick was literally two bits of wood on a handle, and it was a sort of magic wand. And what Grimaldi would do would touch a scene, item of scenery, which would then change due to stage mechanics. It would go ooh and ah, and it made this sort of slapstick sound. So that kind of physical comedy and transformation became associated with slapstick. But Grimaldi became hugely important, hugely significant. So important that he was absolutely pursued all the time by theatre producers. It was extremely easy to lose your shirt if you're producing theatres. People do panto now. I haven't been on tour, you know, so I've I've preceded the panto in lots of regional theatres around Britain. And that'll go on all through December into January. And it's what the theatre washes its face with. Yes, it's because it is the thing that people come to. And also, if you're in panto, you can earn a fortune doing it. But it meant that somebody like Grimaldi was immensely popular and pursued by everybody. And yet there were disasters. He had his biggest disaster. He was pursued by, I think it was um, the owner of Drury Lane. Might have been Sadler's Wells, I'm not sure. But anyway, there was a scene in that in which he pretended to eat a mouse. 
Oh. And it was a miscalculated joke that went down so badly, it caused oh, no. two ladies to have a fight in the auditorium, <laughs> and the show closed after one night only. So in the fortunes of theatre, which yes. are notoriously dynamic, even Grimaldi would not necessarily guarantee you a win. Grimaldi himself got completely knackered, really, as a result of pratfalls, as a result of the physical comedy, and as a result of working incredibly hard. And in the end, he had to retire. He lived quite high on the hog, and his missus lived quite high on the hog, and they had a difficult son who died aged 30 of the drink, I think. And he ended up, actually, poor man, pretty much destitute and an alcoholic himself, living in Islington. Hmm. And that was the end of... Grimaldi, one of those tears of the clown stories that turns yes. out to have a sort of How basis interesting. in reality. Were they always as long, Richard? The last time I took my children to a pantomime, I real—I mean, it is a long old do, isn't it? They're much shorter now than they used to be. They used to be five hours long. It was like going to Götterdammerung. I mean, if you look at Götterdammerung, there's a sort of, you have stock characters, you have people dressed up as animals. Now, that's a really big thing. Putting on skins, as they used to call it. So you will have the pantomime cow, that's a common one, mm. two people in animal skin. I'm not selling this to you, Kat, am I? I'm intrigued. It's so English. But, yeah. Where I wanted to know, you, you touched on that it's obviously big in Britain. Where are the outposts that yes, it's Australia and places? or where, No, where? it's really interesting. The most fascinating outpost that I know of is Andorra. Goodness. So they have a panto in Andorra, yes. which happens every Advent. It's about the biggest thing in Andorra. <laughs> yes. Mind you, having somebody play the washboard would be quite a big thing <laughs> in Andorra. And it's actually English expats living in Andorra mm. put on a panto in Advent. It's become an annual thing. So Andorra has one. Mm. Malta has one too. That's, I think, because of the Navy. expats. Yeah. And you'll find them in Canada. You'll find them in the United States, mm. Australia. But it is very, very much mm. a British thing. It's like, oh, I think taking a foreign friend is really interesting because you go and you just think, well, this is so obvious. And everyone goes, it's behind you, all that yes. call and response thing. Yes. And he was utterly baffled by it. I had no <laughs> idea what was going on. It went on and on and on. But then he took me to a flamenco as a sort of revenge where everyone was shouting ole and jumping up and down, stamping and dancing. And you realise that these are culturally specific They forms. really are, aren't they? So yes. it's not... So, I mean, I think now, if I did go to one now, I would get it and I would probably find it funny because I would understand the cultural reference as much yeah. more than if I went 20 years ago. Can I ask one thing? So yes. your partner, Dickie, is a serious actor. Yes. Would a serious actor ever get involved in Panto or is it absolutely beyond the pale? Well, Ian McKellen, of course, has played oh, the dame. Yes. Often with celebrity casting, mm. often if they don't get it, they just sort of come on and stand around and wave at people. Yes. You need to get it. Ian McKellen completely gets it, I yes. think. But I'm more likely to do Panto yes, than exactly. Dickie is right to do Panto. <laughs> well, we used to do it in Findon. We had a Panto every year. We do have a Panto every year. And the vicar's job was either to be the dame, but I passed that on to my church warden who was a builder. Um, <laughs> and my job was to do the ultraviolet scene where we had one special effect. It was the ultraviolet light. I would come on and dance to Spirit in the Sky. Perfect. That was good fun. But not my favourite <laughs> fact. My favourite fact, Joseph Grimaldi died in Islington wretchedly and is buried in what is now Joseph Grimaldi Park. But at Holy Trinity Hackney, they used to have the clown service. So Joey, it comes from him, which is the name of every clown thereafter, the white face makeup and everything, the ruffle and all that, that was from Grimaldi. So there used to be the clown service every year, but that's now transferred to Holy Trinity Hackney. So every year, it's the first Sunday in February, all the clowns go for the International Clown Service. And in the vestry, 
they keep the register of clown makeup. It's called the egg bank, I think. And basically, it's a cabinet, and you take it out, and there are eggs, and eggs are painted with the individual makeup of every clown clowning in the world so they can keep the sort of copyright of their own particular makeup in the vestry. Holy Trinity Hackney. Check it out, folks. Amazing. I love that. Okay, so should I, go and, should yes. I go and see one or not, Panto? You should definitely okay. go and see right, one. Fine, definitely. fine. I will. Well, there's a test of how English you've become, yes. I think. Yes, a part of my citizenship. I, I, it's long for you, isn't it? Is it is long. That was what I was going to say. I did go last time when it was two and a half hours, and I was really struggling on that. I get the whole humour of it, so it is a fun event, but I wouldn't put it in my diary as a sort of red-letter occasion. Well, the last one I went to, which was New Year's Day in Eastbourne at the Hippodrome, I went with a friend, and at the end he was in tears. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, it's just the thought of everyone sitting at home watching television <laughs> on their own when they could be here. Yes. And it is, oh. it's the gathering of community. Yeah. That's true. And the rehearsing of a community's concerns. Yeah. In my yeah. I had jokes about southern water, yes. or jokes about the state of the bypass, that kind of thing. Yes. It has a really interesting function. Mm, yeah. Excellent. What have you got for us today, Dr. Cat? Right. So I had to really bring it back to Scandinavia <laughs> yes, a little of bit. Course. How could I not? <laughs> it's too tempting. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to be talking about the Nissa. The Nissa? Yeah. Do you know about the Nissa? No, no. Really? Well, he starts out as a kind of goblin or household spirit from Scandinavian folklore that then transform into our Scandinavian version of Father Christmas or Santa Claus. Oh. So you have the Yule Nissa. Which, which is the Christmas Nissa. And that's essentially our version of yeah, Father Christmas. And um, you see them everywhere at Christmas. And in fact, you, they've come over here as well. I think partially the popularity of Scandinavian decorative things. These little creatures that have a big red top hat, they look very much like a garden gnome. And I've been looking into the link with garden gnomes as well. A bit sinister. Well, they're not really. They are benevolent characters. Okay. They're niceness. They're niceness. <laughs> mostly nice, um, yes. I should say. But they start out having nothing to do with Christmas at all, really. Mm. But then in the last sort of century and a bit, they've kind of transformed and they've taken on this role that just comes from other European traditions of Father Christmas and transposed onto these traditional folk beliefs, which I think is a really interesting thing in itself. But the Nyssa is, is great. So the Nyssa, traditionally, it's got different names across Scandinavia. The Swedish version is a Tomta, and you've got lots of other names. But they start out as essentially this sort of pixie or being that lives near people on the farmstead. So you have one on your farmstead, usually in the stables or somewhere like that. And it does useful jobs for you. So it helps out around the animals or whatever. And... Um, they tend to be uh, live alone and they're very shy, very useful, very nice. They're also seen as kind of protectors or guardians of the farm. But as long as you treat them well, because they have a temperament. And so if you don't treat them well, if you don't do what you should be doing, then they will do all sorts of nasty things. Uh, could so, be sinister. Yeah. Like goblins, yeah. like goblins, aren't they? Yeah. A bit. They can they turn. Can be. Yeah. They can turn. So you have to do things like you have to feed them. There's various other stories about what you should and shouldn't do. Some of the stories say that, you know, they're quite sort of gentle. They might let out the cows. Others have that they murder your cows and, yeah. uh, and all your, your livestock. But they actually go back a much longer than we sort of think. Most of the stories we have from them go back to fairy tales and collections of folk tales in the 1830s and 40s. So we have these great collectors of folk tales called Aspianson and Moore, who were, look at you mentioned the Brothers Grimm and, uh, and other stories earlier on. And in that same tradition, we had that around Norway collecting these traditional tales. 
And there's sort of a little snapshot of the mid-19th century where we have these Nyssa everywhere. But we know they go back further in time because even going back to Viking age, for example, obviously you have to get the Vikings in here, uh, we have these farmsteads where you have, a, again, a sort of farm dweller, some sort of ancestor. And typically these rural farmsteads would have a burial mound or several burial mounds where the family was buried. And in them... Those characters were often thought to reside inside the mound. And they were essentially the founders of the, the farmstead and also kind of the protectors. So you had to go, you had to feed them, you had to give them on feast times, so you had to give them food. So that's thought to be the starting point for these Nyssa that come in later on that are the mythical protectors of your farm. Can I ask, Kat? So yeah. Because my Norwegian isn't where it should be, does Nissa actually mean something? No, so we don't know where the name comes from. It's thought to be a shortened version of the name Nils, which is essentially the Scandinavian version of Nicholas that comes okay. in oh, from sure. Germany okay. after the Reformation, that name comes in. There is another theory that it comes from an old Norse word, which is Nithsi, which means dear little relative. Sometime in the 19th century, this is also the time when we start getting pictures of them. Oh. And they're dressed essentially like a, a normal person, but with a top hat, so a pointy top hat, which can be grey, but it's typically red. So bright mm. red top hat, which is where you get the connection to the garden gnomes as well, because ah, they look yes. very much like that. And they're also little sort of goblin characters that live in your garden. I've got a question for you, Kat. Where did the garden gnome arrive when it came to England? I knew you would know this. I knew, Do you know, Charles? No, no, I don't. You should know. Yes, you should. You should both know. Come on. Well, I'd be disappointed. Hands. Yeah. Yes. Oh, really? Lamport. Goodness. That was the first place. So I pinch story from you. Sorry, Kat. That's absolutely fine. I knew you would know this. So well, a <laughs> neighbour of yours, Charles, the Isham family in yes. Lamport Hall in Northamptonshire, it was not Sir Charles. I can't remember which Isham it was. It was Sir Charles Isham. Sir Charles. Yes. Mm. Um, just fell in love with garden gnomes and brought them to the garden at Lamport. And before you know it, they'd spread around the gardens of England. How extraordinary. He had a rockery garden and he put them all in there. He imported, I think, 21 of them and then um, put them all on display and they became very popular. Do you want to know another interesting fact related to that? Yes. Well, the rector of Lamport was the father of Dennis Watkins Pitchford, also known as B.B., famous writer of children's stories. And one of his famous stories is The Little Grey Men because he believed in elves. Oh. And when he was a little boy living in the rectory at Lamport, he thought, and he thought all his life, he believed this to be true, that he'd seen an elf. And I wondered if it was one of the garden gnomes at Lamport over oh, the wall on the other side. It's literally across the road, saw. yes. Yeah. It could have been. It's the most been. beautiful building, that old rectory. Oh, so lovely. It's the most perfect rectory. Yes. All of the Diocese of Peterborough. Not yes. Just saying. <laughs> Do you know that there's only one of those original gnomes remains, apparently? Do you know what it's called? No. Lumpy. Lampy. And apparently it's insured for well over a million pounds or something. It's That's very fantastic. valuable. It's the first the garden first gnome. Did you get them from Bavaria, I think? Yes, from the Black Forest region yeah. in the 19th yeah. century. But it's interesting how those that's the same concept of these sort of creatures that live outside in the garden. I couldn't find any sort of definite link between the German tradition and the Norwegian Nissa. I was desperately looking for it, but I couldn't find it. But um, interesting. interestingly, they survived into Christianity as well, even though these are spirits and supernatural beings in Scandinavia, certainly. But um, a lot of priests would um, 
describe them as something very negative, uh, demonized remains of hedonism, really, linking them to the devil alongside trolls and other sort of superstitious beings. And that's also why we know quite a lot about them. I was in Lapland a few years ago before Christmas, and I met a bloke who lived in a village up in the woods of Sami. And that village had only had, I think, electricity since about 1980. It was very remote indeed. And we were talking through an interpreter about elves. And he really believed in elves. And I thought, you don't really believe in elves. Come on. It's just a touristy kind of thing. And he said, no, we, of course we believe in elves. And he said, well, I could show you one. I thought, I'd love to see an elf. He said, well, I've got a wall elf. Because, you know, there are different elves. So there's a wall elf. And so he showed me what it was, was a knot of wood in one of the planks in the wall that looked like a face. But he really believed that it was not just a knot of wood, but that it was what he would call a wall elf. That's so yeah, lovely, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I grew up with being told that Nissa were all around, not just the Christmas ones, but that they were living around there. So, you know, it's a what do you think traditional that's about thing. Pet? I mean, obviously it explains unexplained phenomena. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere like Norway is actually extremely dangerous environment to live in in certain parts of the country because if you're living in those fjords, are really quite tricky places to live. Yeah. I think a lot of these are telling you not to go, you know, what you should and shouldn't do. So if you are having to keep your Nissa happy because you have to follow all the rules. Some of it's about that. Because I remember we had all these creatures that lived in lakes, that lived in the forests. And I think they were very much told, especially to children, to As a way of keep them away. away. Yeah. But I'm looking to how it sort of goes into Christmas again. We don't really know that, but it, it merges. And one of the things that remains is this idea that you have to give him a meal. So going way back to those feasts in, in the Viking times where you have to feed person who lives in the mound we still have to do that and you have to give the nissa rice porridge which is also one of the things that we eat oh, at christmas we, yeah, it's rice porridge christmas. yeah with butter like a big knob of butter Ooh. inside and if he doesn't get the butter he gets very very angry but we, we have it was, my father christmas when he visited us we had to give him mince pies and then oddly enough my father's favorite sherry Yes. Which was essential for Father Christmas. Yes, my children used to leave Calvados, which is a very nice thing for Father Christmas to have. It's a good apple brandy. So Father Christmas used to leave sooty footprints going from the fireplace Ah. to the Christmas tree, Mm. which was... That's very good. Stoked the imagination. (laughs) So we have the Yulanissa actually comes to your house in the evening. He knocks on the door and he has this big sack of presents with him. And that still happens today. He will actually come and arrive after you've had your dinner. He knocks on the door and brings the presents and you talk to him and then he goes away again. I was shot by my son, Ned, because I went into his bedroom late on Christmas Eve and he had set up, he'd set up a trap with a a crossbow (laughs) uh, and a wire. So I got shot in the chest. (laughs) 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 Trying to try to kill Father Christmas. (laughs) And the reindeer wouldn't have lasted very long. (laughs) That would have been butchered. So I hope, anyway, I took the bullet, well, I took the arrow for Father Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) You saved Christmas, actually. I did. Thank God. Father Christmas did arrive in... Well, it was all fine after that. Yeah, good, yes. (laughs) Love that. Do you want to know my favourite facts? Yes, please. So the Nyssa also became a symbol of political resistance. So if we go back to the 1920s, there was actually a, a ban on high-proof spirits for a while in Norway. And so all these postcards were being published, which showed the Nyssa illegally importing booze by boat into the country. So that was the first sort of uh, 
yeah, a way that the Nyssa was involved in this. But in the Second World War, he became very much the symbol. And there was a publisher in 1941 that uh, published a series of nine Christmas cards with a Nyssa wishing all Norwegians happy Christmas. So as in, obviously, oh, yes. this was a time when, when Norway was occupied by the Nazis. Yes. And um, the Nazi party very soon caught on. So on the 22nd of December, the post offices were made to withdraw any of those cards that they found. But then it was the red top hat that became the big symbol because that symbolised the Nyssa and, and very much Norwegian culture. So people would be wearing their red top hats. When you a, say top hat? So, sorry, not top hat. I mean, it's like, like a, a pointy, knitted pointy, pointy yeah. Yes. So Santa hat, hat. we'd say. Essentially, yeah, but that goes back even before the Santa tradition. They were also banned. So on the 26th of February 1942, these red hats were banned from Norway. The Nazis so. just didn't have a sense of humour about no, these things, did they? clearly not. Well, it reminded me of when we talk about the fezzes. Do you remember the fezzes? Yes. Yes. The red felt hat. Yes. And then they indeed got banned too because a hat is a statement among them. Yeah, it is, isn't and it? And red hats yeah. apparently do go back other places as well. The red hats are symbols of resistance. Well, I think we need to get to the final part of this and let's see if the disembodied voice is in a Christmas spirit today. Yes. Ho, ho, ho. Um, that's <laughs> that was convincing. <laughs> and, oh, yes, it is yeah. going to be Richard this week. Oh, well Merry done. Christmas, everybody. Thank well you. Done. Thank you. Wonderful. I'm not keeping tabs or anything, but I think this that's there's everything you, to play for. I think that's given you some blue water ahead between us, actually. I think we probably... No, no. It's neck and neck, I think. It's very neck and neck, actually. In terms of this season alone, Charles has still got the most wins, so six. Um, whereas Kat and Richard now both have five wins. Um, mm. But from the first ever episode, Richard is now in the lead with 15 and Charles and Kat closely followed on 14 apiece. 14, wow. Well, just, I know Richard okay. won't even remember that for a second. <laughs> no. Just a number. Just a number. You've made a very good second, both of you. <laughs> well, fine. <Yeah. laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you both so much. Good Yule to you. Yeah, for yes. Yule. Yes, Yule. and to you. May the Nissa be with you. I hopefully he will, yes, on Christmas Eve. Exactly. Just, Don't forget to watch It's yes. a Wonderful Life. Yes. <laughs> and go to the panto cat. I do all those things. Mm. Yes. And then you can both come around to mine and have pork yeah. on Christmas Eve. Delicious. Have nice Christmas dinner. But before we go, we have to tell our listeners that we're actually going to be enjoying all those things over Christmas and take a, a very short Christmas break. But we will be back very soon on January the 10th. And in the meantime, we're obviously not going to rest because we've got lots of homework mm. to do mm. to look into our next topics. So when we come back, I'm going to be staying in the sort of mythical world and I'm going to be researching unicorns. Oh. And Charles, can you please look into Black Death? Yes. Oh. Just to sort of keep it a Some, bit. Yeah, something you know. grim. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and Richard, you're going to have to explain this one. Debtor's prison. Debtor's prison. Something we can all look forward to after <laughs> Christmas, I think. <laughs> Wonderful. Well... That's it for this week, I think. So thank you, everyone out there for listening. A happy Christmas. Very happy, happy Christmas. Christmas. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. You can also send us an email if you'd like, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic. Rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. And if, like me, you still haven't got all your Christmas presents sorted yet, I have a suggestion. 
we are going to be holding our first ever Rabbit Hole Detectives live show. So why don't you buy someone a ticket? We're going to be at the beautiful Northampton Royal Theatre on the 10th of February 2024, where we're going to be recording one of our podcasts. And in the second half, we're going to have a conversation with our audience so you can have a chance to ask us questions. To book a ticket, just go to fame.co.uk forward slash rabbit dash hole dash detectives. Or you can book directly with the Royal and Derngate Theatre. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, the best way to explain it is to do it. Goodbye and happy Christmas once yeah. again. Goyul, goyul. Goyul, let's just I'll just stick with Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas <laughs> with a Dickensian ring oh, to it. Yeah. <laughs>